0: SCP-7004 Insane, Wailing, Feral We've seen plenty of examples so far of various individuals, primarily within the Foundation, going above and beyond the call of duty to try and uphold the Foundation's goals. Agents risking life and limb, researchers delving into extremely dangerous experimentations, and D-class that do far more than anyone expects of them. SCP-7004 finds two agents tasked with a nearly impossible mission in the midst of a horrible apocalypse, but it's times like that where the Foundation really shows its worth to humanity. Anyone can stand outside of a wild animal's cage and watch it, but it's a different story when the animal is loose. Let's take a look. We're first given a warning that SCP-7004 is a class 10 realization type memetic infohazard, meaning that learning any information about it can cause exposure to its effects. To reduce the infectiousness of the document then, it's been automatically modified by Foundation AIs, and we are to proceed at our own discretion. We're then given the proper documentation for 7004, informing us that its object class is Apollyon, so it's practically impossible to contain, and we're provided an eerie photo of some sort of humanoid creature with multiple heads and arms. The caption informs us that this is an instance of 7004-1 shortly following a blossom event with two pedal instances seen emerging from it. The containment procedures go further to express how dangerous information related to 7004 is, and how pretty much the entire Foundation is on deck to handle the situation, although only AIs are allowed to handle information suppression due to too many incidents involving humans. Further updates to the containment procedures mention how all 7004-1 instances are to be terminated on site, with priority given to those found exclaiming words like native or natives. Additionally, the maintenance of the veil of secrecy is relegated to the lowest priority level, so things are looking pretty bad for the world. The description states that SCP-7004 is a class 10 realization type memetic info hazard, meaning that it doesn't rely on definitive knowledge of a word or phrase in order to trigger, but rather the very act of coming to understand or realize the phrase that makes up 7004 causes its effects to trigger. This just means that it's even easier to spread than a normal info hazard which is reflected in the number of currently affected people worldwide, which was originally stated to be 3000, then 9 million, then 156 million, and now 1 billion. When a subject comprehends 7004, they are immediately subject to a blossom event, which causes a number of effects. First, there's an immediate tearing pain in the abdomen followed by the violent rupturing of the torso from inside forces, then the rapid emergence of 2 to 27 separate individuals from this rupture, ranging from children as young as 3 to 100-year-old adults, which immediately causes the death of the individual and the creation of a 7004-1 instance. The emerged individuals, known as pedal instances, will begin to scream loudly, often in multiple different languages, speaking phrases that contain the info-hazard which causes further spread. This document, as mentioned, has been edited to remove all of the dangerous info-hazard vectors so we don't get a complete picture. Common phrases said by pedal instances include where are vector removed, and we are vector removed. After activation they have been observed to demonstrate certain functions, although these have also been removed from the document. They have also been observed constructing buildings in a haphazard manner through an unknown anomalous means, though a certain minority have also been seen doing other redacted activities. While that's all very good and mysterious, we'll learn more about what they're doing as we continue on. SCP 7004 was first discovered on July 15th, 2021, following several early reports of people with multiple bodies at different locations across the globe, including Utah, China, Japan, and India. Foundation web crawlers initially classified these reports as to be investigated and a third priority subject of interest. On the following day, multiple reports began to surface of additional people bursting apart on the wider internet, with several videos featuring multiple 7004-1 entities being uploaded to various social media platforms. As these videos contained pedal vocalizations, they provided potent 7004 vectors, causing additional blossom events that would subsequently add to the spread. Shortly after a direct correlation was drawn between the viewing of these videos and the occurrence of blossom events, the global occult coalition began efforts to take down the videos, which in turn fueled speculation regarding the phenomenon on online forums such as Parawatch. These speculations themselves then provided vectors for 7004 allowing individuals access to info which would then lead them to come to conclusions which would expose them to 7004's effects. We can see here how easily this stuff can spread, and by the 17th of July, only two days after the initial reports, approximately 156 million individuals had been transformed into 7004-1 instances. This is when the foundation jumped in, a little late to the party opening up channels with the GOC to help contain the spread. Several hours after official cooperation began, a general media blackout of official news outlets was implemented. Unfortunately, it continued to spread across the internet, exposing approximately 600 million more individuals. Containment of 7004 became an alpha priority objective, with information blackouts being the primary mode of containment for both the Foundation and the GOC. The leadership of both organizations directed their efforts to the temporary restriction of the internet in several countries, which only served to fuel more speculation about 7004, which subsequently caused millions of blossom events in countries unaffected by the bans. The amount of affected individuals reached 1 billion on July 20th, only 5 days after the start and operations to halt the spread of 7004 are still ongoing. An update from the 21st shows that the number has reached 3 billion, and the GOC has forcefully enacted bans on the internet in several major countries. An update from the 22nd states that the number has now reached 6 billion, and blossom events have started to occur among the foundation staff. The following day, site 82 released a distress signal, and the document contains the text help us please, if anyone can hear, please send someone, followed by some more text that has had the hazardous vectors removed. The personnel responsible for posting this text was reported for disciplinary action by the AI and banned from making any further edits to the file. On the 23rd, site 82 was declared inoperative due to SCP-7004, followed by 6 more sites the following day, and site 19 followed suit within a couple days. Also on the 26th, site 01 released a distress signal, and 054 activated the Aetna protocol. As such, the council's operations have been suspended. With executive authority being delegated to regional directors and site directors until the central leadership can be re established. We're given an auto transcribed file from a video of the O5 Council before the protocol was activated. The video begins with all five attending members of the Council gathered around a table, three of them panting with exhaustion, while O5 4 is standing opposite them, shaking papers in his hand. And shouting. The words SCP-2000 Ganymede Protocol are seen in bold letters at the top of one of the papers. O59 is standing beside him, shaking her head with disapproval. O54 turns to address Nine, speaking sternly to her as he glances over at the other members before raising his hand and asking if they are all in favor. All of them raise their hands except for 059, so four nods before turning to a terminal and typing in a command. 051 begins to stand up to speak, but is interrupted as 052 steps into the room, bleeding from his mouth and onto his suit. He staggers into the room and leans against 051, coughing up more blood onto the table. He then begins to shout with alarm before violently stumbling back, as O54 covers his ears and warns the others, to no avail. O52's abdomen then begins to rupture, with several fingers appearing at the widening wound. A bloody and panting human head is seen emerging from his abdomen, followed by an arm as it attempts to pull itself out of O52. All of the council members move back in shock as he screams in pain, and 055 begins to also cough up blood, followed by 059. 056 moves back before doubling over as she begins to vomit blood onto the floor. Panicked, 051 draws a pistol and fires several shots at 056, killing her. 051 and 4 are seen glancing at each other before a thin trail of blood escapes from 0 ones lips, followed by an outpouring of blood onto the table. 0 shouts something at him as he slides his pistol across to 0 telling him to do it. 0 quickly takes the pistol from the table and fires a single shot at 0 ones head, killing him instantly. He then stands there, overseeing the chaos going on around him and tries to kill another of the convulsing overseers, but the gun fails to fire. The limp corpse of O5-1 continues to seize however, and the corpse of O5-6 does the same, with several arms already emerging from their torn abdomen. O5-4 immediately drops the firearm, clamping his hands to his ears once again as he runs out of the room, dodging the reaching hands of the former O5-2. Several other instances are glimpsed outside of the room, and a few minutes later, a remote terminal is accessed by O5-4, at which point the Etna protocol is activated. It turns out that O5-4 in this situation is Alto Clef, and he logs on to check the operational status of all MTFs specifically trained to handle infohazards, meaning MTF ETA-10, see no evil. MTF Row 9, technical support, and MTF Upsilon 4, Sugar Pill. All three are listed as inactive, so Clef then brings up any MTFs trained for infohazards that have been blacklisted for whatever reason. This query returns one result. MTF Mu7, our twisted minds, which are listed as currently active were then given a dossier on MU7. MU7 is a specialized experimental task force composed of regular foundation personnel given extreme resistance to infohazardous phenomena via the application of the sarkic practice of brain twisting. When compared to other MTFs, brain twisting allows the user to unconsciously resist infohazards with nearly 99% efficiency, allowing continued operation without the use of specialized equipment. Mu-7 was first created during a specialized training program in 2011, following the defection of Carcist Alco to foundation authorities the year before. Alco demonstrated knowledge of several previously unknown Sarkic techniques, with brain-twisting being among them. As part of an internal push to incorporate more anomalous techniques into foundation doctrine, ALCO was mandated to teach the practice of brain twisting to two specially chosen foundation operatives, former MTF ETA-10 squad leader Lena Navara and former squad member Cassandra Mullins. This led to the creation of Mu-7 a year later. Following the December 2014 incident at Site-43, however, Karsist Alco escaped Foundation custody with several Sarkic anomalies, causing a major containment breach and killing 125 Foundation personnel. Following an internal risk review led by the O5 Council, several experimental task forces including Mu-7 were relegated to auxiliary functions and blacklisted from participating in wider foundation operations. As of now, mu7 is currently stationed at the remote containment site 11000, within a national park reserve in the Yukon in Canada. That doesn't really explain at all what brain twisting involves, but it does explain why they were blacklisted, as it's a little hard to trust the techniques from a double-crossing sarkite. This may be their time to shine however, and Clef proceeds to unlock all the clearance requirements for the 7004 document, sending it over to the MTF along with a message. Clef tells them that he is the last o5 still left alive to his knowledge, and presumably they have no idea what's going on right now, and if they do then there goes their last hope to stop this thing. If they don't however, they deserve an explanation. He explains that the world has ended due to a memetic infohazard, SCP-7004, and right now they are the only two people left on earth that can make sure they can come back from this. His last express request is for them to go to Yellowstone, find SCP-2000, and input the numbers 12, 25, 2000 into it. This should reset the world and save what's left of it. This document will tell them everything they need to know about 7004, everything they need to prepare for all that it's worth. Before the rest of the council went dark, they did everything they'd need to make sure scp-2000 comes online once they get there and they've been given a promotion to level 5, effective immediately. They should also record everything they see as he wants to stay updated 24-7, although his message gets interrupted as he says that they're here and he needs to go. He wishes them good luck and godspeed, as they'll need it. Alright then, we have our scenario. Two MTF agents that have been locked away from the world due to their unique abnormality are now the world's best hope due to that same abnormality. They just have to head from their site in the Yukon in Canada down to Yellowstone in Wyoming amidst a global apocalypse of mutated humans with the barest minimum of support from anyone else. The remainder of the document therefore largely consists of the transcribed log of their video footage starting with the two at their containment site. Lena is seen standing in front of a desk, using a terminal to access the internal SCP database. Cassandra is operating the camera, and we can see that the system is automatically transcribing the video into the document in real time. Lena sighs with relief and turns to face the camera, showing her to be 35 years of age, with short black hair, and an exhausted expression on her face. She says to the camera that, for whoever is watching, they are MTF Mu7, currently broadcasting from containment site 11,000 in the middle of nowhere, just where the foundation wants them to be. She then nods to Cassandra, who places the camera down and moves into view. Cassandra is 24 years of age, with long red hair, and bears an excitable expression as she salutes and states that she's reporting for duty. Lena shrugs and half-heartedly salutes as well, although not directly at the camera, quickly lowering her hand. She says that she's not sure if 0 054 can hear them, but with all due respect, this order is unorthodox. This doesn't look like an official command for transfer, and they have no assurance of whether it's a real command or not. They don't get much reception out here, and if they did, they apparently wouldn't have been considered for this assignment. She looks at the camera, seemingly waiting for an answer, clearly skeptical, while Cassandra glances between the camera and Lena, showing her nervousness. She then begins to talk to the camera, but Lena tells her to save it, as they won't get an answer. Lena then goes and gets a molly pack, containing provisions and supplies, asking Cassandra if she has her molly ready. Cassandra is unsure if they're actually going to go through with the mission, but she's packed her bag. Lena tells her that she's not sure if it actually is 0 054 behind all of this or if it's some kind of trick, but she has friends and family out there. Even if it isn't an official order, she wants to know if this is real, and if this really is their only chance at saving everyone. She tells Cassandra to put the site on conditional lockdown, putting on her winter clothes. She's going to go out to the Foundation Waystation to try and establish contact with the outside world, while Cassandra stays here. Cassandra is surprised but follows orders, and they turn off the camera for now. Later that night, the camera feed picks back up inside of their shared bedroom, as Lena says that 054 didn't lie to them after all. The world has gone to hell, and they didn't even know. She holds back some tears, and says that her head hurts now more than anything she's ever experienced which is stopping her from remembering anything about what she just heard from the outside world. She's visibly shaking from the pain, but tries to compose herself and says that they're leaving now as 054 ordered, putting the facility on permanent lockdown. She didn't want to believe him at first, as the 7004 file claims that the world went to hell in two weeks and there was no way the foundation could have lost that fast. She shrugs and shakes her head, saying that deep down inside of her, she just didn't want the responsibility and the obligation. The foundation put them here in the middle of nowhere, shut them up where they didn't belong, when they could have been so much more useful somewhere else, just because they decided to train them in something that they didn't like. Now they're the foundation's last hope so she guesses that gives her the liberty to say whatever she wants now. She says that Cassandra may say otherwise, but she's not doing this for any of them. She's doing this for the family she left to go work for the foundation, the family that may still have had a chance at living if the foundation didn't mess everything up. She then stands up quickly and walks out of the room, leaving Cassandra with the camera. She shrugs uncomfortably and says that she doesn't really blame any of the Foundation for putting them all the way out here. She understands the stigma related to sarcasm, as they're the bad guys, the Foundation are the good guys, and Mu7 are somewhere in between. If they want them to save the world, she's okay with that. She read the file, and she knows there are monsters out there bursting out of people's bodies and they're going to set things right. They don't need a thank you, they don't need anything, but she hopes that in the next world, after they reset everything, the foundation will treat them better. Treat all of them better. She then pauses for a second and shakes her head, saying that she doesn't mean to order them around like that, but it's just a thought. Lena may be doing this for her family, but She just wants everything to be normal again, and she doesn't want people to die. They'll make sure the world comes through alright, and the foundation will be with them every step of the way. She's interrupted by a loud blaring noise emanating from the site's speakers, and the room takes on a red light. The permanent lockdown is initiated, and they're about to leave, so she shuts down the camera. The footage picks up again with the two on a highway in the Yukon a couple of days later. Lena says that they'll check in every two days and take turns so that their helmet cameras don't lose batteries, because they're going to avoid all cities. They're coming up on the town of Watson Lake, and if they don't see any transformed individuals there, they're going to take stock and resupply. The food they have will only last them another day, and they'd also like to find a car as that would shorten the trip from months to days. Cassandra stops to drink some water from her canteen, and after she finishes, she notices Lena standing still and looking out at something. She seems tense and tells Cassandra to get out her map, asking her how big the town of Watson Lake is. Cassandra does so reading the map which states that the town has around 790 people in it, with only a few streets in the town proper. Lena asks to confirm that there's no big buildings in the town, nothing tower tall, causing Cassandra to look up. The video footage shows a large, twisted collection of poles, all constructed haphazardly together. Some of the poles knot together and meet, while others go in a sideways or diagonal direction. Even from a distance, each of the poles can be seen displaying a multitude of signs, roughly 100,000. The shortest of the poles reaches up to 40 meters tall, with the tallest approaching 70 meters. At the peaks of some of the poles, multiple figures can be seen moving. This used to be Watson Lake's famous attraction, the signpost forest, consisting of tens of thousands of signs. Cassandra says that it was tiny when they last came through, three meters tall at the most, and in an orderly rows. Lena uses her binoculars to see that the figures on top of the poles are infected individuals, building more and more poles with no rhyme or reason. She says that there's no way they're going through that, but Cassandra says that this is the last town around for miles, and their only chance to get food. Lena swears and shakes her head, but eventually agrees that they'll have to go in, under the cover of night. They begin walking towards the town, and turn the camera off. The footage picks up again, a few hours later, with the video being in total darkness. The sounds of metal and plastic being moved around are heard, and Lena tells Cassandra to turn on the camera's night vision. Both of the agents are then seen in a grassy field, overlooking a lake close to the town. A large collection of thin poles dominates the area above the town, the former signpost forest. Apparently the night vision goggles they brought with were busted forcing them to use the goggles at a different perspective than eye level. The two are interrupted as a large metallic snap is heard, and a pole from the forest falls to the ground, bringing at least twenty more with it. The figures of at least a hundred infected individuals are seen falling with them, and the sounds of far off screaming are heard. Lena takes this as their cue to begin slowly moving in and the sounds of screaming get louder and louder. Cassandra says that it sounds like they're in pain, and then mentions that they sound so much more like something than she could have ever thought, although the something has been removed from the document for containing a 7004 vector. Cassandra then immediately groans in pain, cradling her head, and Lena turns to whisper to her to stop thinking, as it'll make it harder on her. She knows the pain is terrible, so she tells her to stop thinking about it and let her head do the work for her. After a few seconds, Cassandra recovers and says that the pain has stopped and she can't remember what she said. The two continue on, and as they get closer to the town, the screams get louder before slowly decreasing in volume and there are sounds of heavy metal poles being lifted up and set down. This continues for several minutes as the two approach, eventually getting close enough to see a small supermarket near them. They stand to move quickly across the open ground, reaching the wall near the front door to the supermarket. With firearms ready, they flank the door and look inside, seeing no instances. There is one on the street about three hundred meters away, wailing, but it takes no notice of them. They enter the supermarket, and can soon hear sounds of plastics being carried around and opened further into the interior. The two sweep through the aisles, eventually coming across an infected instance at the far end, violently opening a box containing a radio. Both of its pedal instances, which consists of an approximately forty year old male and a sixteen year old female, are using their arms to pull the cardboard material apart, with pieces of plastic and bubble wrap strewn around them. The male instance is heard saying something about pulling harder, and the female instance begins to scream with frustrated effort. They continue to pull at opposite sides of the box as Cassandra pulls a foundation-issued maximum silence suppressor out of her pocket, quietly putting it onto the barrel of her gun. While she does so, the creature manages to open the box, picking up the radio. The female instance says something about, work, and the male says something about, then we go. Soon after, the sound of the radio crackling to life is heard followed by the sound of it being tuned to different frequencies. Cassandra continues to screw the silencer onto her gun barrel, but the sound of a male voice is heard on the radio, and the female instance begins to vocalize in a way similar to squealing. The voice on the radio then speaks a 7004 vector phrase, causing Cassandra to instinctively groan with pain, bringing both of her hands to her ears as her gun falls to the ground. The creature takes notice and can be heard standing up as Cassandra continues to writhe in pain as the female instance says that it thinks something is here mentioning the words native and lifeboat. The voice on the radio says to proceed to somewhere where it is safe for all but the 7004 vector causes Cassandra to let out a scream. The creature begins to lumber towards her, as Cassandra tries to quiet her screams and crawl towards her gun. The creature then sees her and the male instance starts to shout about a native. Suddenly several quiet squeaks of air are heard behind Cassandra, followed by several grunts of pain. Cassandra crawls forward and grabs her gun, turning around. She then sees the creature clinging to the shelf as it bleeds from several gunshot wounds to its side. Cassandra then fires a few rounds into it, releasing several more quiet squeaks of air, causing the creature to fall to the ground limp. The voice on the radio repeats their last message, causing Cassandra to groan in pain once again And she crawls over to see Lena also groaning in pain. She gestures to the radio and tells Cassandra to destroy it, and so with a grunt of effort, she takes it and bashes it against the floor several times. The two agents recover, although Cassandra is staring at the dead creature and says that they weren't like the other ones. They were sane. Lena cocks her head to the side, but before she can respond, she realizes to go check outside to see if any other instances heard the noises. After a few tense seconds, she sighs with relief, as the glass must have contained the sound. Cassandra seems distant, however, so Lena goes over to her and removes her helmet. She tells her that those aren't people, they are things, SCPs. She tells Cassandra to stay tough and not think about it, as that'll just make her head ache again. Cassandra tries to avoid Lena's gaze, but eventually raises her head and nods. Lena exhales and pats Cassandra on the shoulder, before telling her to start grabbing the essentials, including food, water, winter clothing, space blankets, earplugs, and anything else they can use for the ride down south. Lena meanwhile is going to go check out the pickup truck out front, and pulls out a long, thick wire from her pocket, saying that a rough childhood gives you certain skills. As Lena turns to leave, she tells Cassandra to put her helmet back on, and although Cassandra says that it's still a bit weird seeing stuff from above her head, she'll get used to it. She then starts to comb through the shelves and takes a duffel bag, notably avoiding looking at the creature's carcass. She continues to fill the duffel bag with supplies over the next few minutes, while Lena attempts to open the truck door outside with the wire. Eventually Cassandra comes outside with a full bag, while Lena continues to struggle with the door. She asks Cassandra how much water she got, to which she says that she got about 20 bottles. Lena responds that if the car works, they'll spend probably a week on the road, but if not, they'll need a lot more water. She tells her to try looking behind the counter for big jugs, and Cassandra dutifully starts to go back to look. As she does so, the sound of metal crashing can be heard again in the distance, followed by anguished screams. Cassandra looks in the direction of the screams, but Lena tells her not to get distracted, because they can't afford to stop. Cassandra looks down and hesitates before going back into the store. She soon finds some water jugs underneath the counter, but as she reaches to grab them, her helmet camera hits a small metal box on the shelf behind it, causing a loud clang as the box hits the ground. Fortunately, the creatures outside didn't seem to have heard it and Cassandra breathes a sigh of relief. She opens the metal box, finding car keys inside, and excitedly grabs them. She heads back outside and whispers to Lena, but Lena doesn't seem to notice in her concentration. Cassandra speaks again, slightly louder, causing Lena's concentration to break and her hand to slip. As her hand slips, the wire twists and triggers the car alarm to go off, blaring across the town. In the distance, the sounds of anguished screaming stop, and the sounds of hurried footsteps are heard. Lena looks at the car door in horror, frozen in place, but soon turns and grabs the duffel bag, yelling at Cassandra to grab what she can and run. Cassandra however reaches out and grabs Lena, telling her to wait, and she drops the water jugs. She presses the car keys into Lena's hand and tells her to get inside, quick. Lena takes the keys and opens the door, stopping the alarm, but the screams of the rapidly incoming creatures continue to get louder. Hurriedly, Lena rushes into the driver's seat while starting up the truck yelling at Cassandra to get the jugs in the back so they can get out of here. Cassandra moves to start lifting the first jug into the truck, as several creatures begin to move into the camera's field of view from the adjacent street. Each of the creatures move in differing ways, with none of them able to use their host's lower legs to run. Instead, each of them attempts to cooperate between each other in order to use their arms to move forward to varying degrees of success. Some continue to wave their arms in the air, screaming as they do so, as if to do something that's removed from the document. Less than half of them are vocalizing in English, and various vector-containing phrases are heard prominently. As Cassandra watches the creatures moving towards her, she immediately screams in pain, causing her to let go of the jug which falls into the cargo bed with a loud sound. She crumples to the ground, clutching her head in pain, and Lena exits the car with both of her hands on her ears. She runs over to Cassandra, crouching down to help her up, but she begins to scream in pain as well now. She still manages to lift Cassandra up, and the two get back into the truck, with Cassandra in the driver's seat. Lena enters while screaming in pain with her hand over her ears, although the car muffles the sounds from outside, allowing them to come to their senses. Suddenly, the sound of an object slamming against the car is heard, and as Cassandra instinctively turns her head to see what is making the sound, she sees three human faces screaming in a muffled manner, banging against the car window with open palms. They are speaking and Lena tells Cassandra to start driving as more instances start appearing around the vehicle. As she peels out of the lot, she runs over one of the instances and a loud, anguished screaming is heard. They manage to get onto the road and swiftly leave the town. Lena lets out a groan and is sitting in a fetal position, still pressing both of her hands to her ears. Cassandra reassures her that they're okay now, before letting out a groan of her own. Turning to look back, the creatures can still be seen near the town, waving their arms. Cassandra begins to ask a question about the creatures, but Lena tells her not to think about it, before groaning in pain again. Cassandra shakes her head, and her hands can be seen shaking as they grip the wheel, She groans loudly in pain again, before suddenly slamming on the truck's brakes. She sits there, frozen for several seconds, before slowly and shakily removing her helmet. She places it on her lap, and seems to come to some sort of realization, with her breathing continuing to be quick and heavy. She tries to slow down her breathing, and quietly tells herself to not think about it, and to forget it all. She whispers to herself that they're monsters, nothing but SCPs. She continues to shake and unsteadily breathe, telling herself to ignore the pain and the screams. She sits there slowly and deliberately breathing for a minute, before eventually moving her hand to the camera's off switch. Lena however then reaches over and touches Cassandra's arm as a tear runs down Cassandra's face. She tells herself again to ignore it all, and the camera is switched off. Obviously, something is not quite right with these transformed creatures, but we're left with a disadvantage as most of what they are saying is being removed from the document. Lena and Cassandra can hear it, causing them to be quite horrified with what they're finding out but their brain twisting allows them to forget it, along with protecting them from being transformed. The footage picks up again the following morning, as the two are speeding along in the truck on the highway. The only sounds are from the vehicle, until Lena asks where they are, in a groggy tone. Cassandra replies, her voice also slow and slurred, and says that they are in British Columbia now, she thinks. They passed Fort St. John a while back, and she had to take a few back roads to avoid the creatures. They were building random stuff there as well, but much bigger. Lena asks her if she wants her to take over, and asks what time it is. Cassandra hesitates while looking at the clock, and says that it's 8.29. Lena shifts in her seat and says that it's 6.29 causing Cassandra to chuckle tiredly and say that she didn't even realize that she was sleepy due to adrenaline. Lena commands her to pull over, and after a few moments, Cassandra sighs and stops the car. Lena gets out and opens the driver's side door, telling her to get out of the driver's seat. Cassandra slowly tries to argue that she's fine, but Lena firmly orders her to get out with the two eventually swapping seats. Cassandra is clearly exhausted, but follows orders, and the two continue on. After more silence, Cassandra eventually says that she's sorry for screwing up, causing Lena to exhale and tell her to not think about it. What she does want her to think about though is how she kept pushing herself after eleven hours of nonstop driving. She tells her that she may have messed up back in Watson Lake, but that doesn't mean she has the right to push herself to the brink of death just to make up for it. She got unlucky, and that's it, so she doesn't need to hold herself up with atoning. Cassandra tries to argue that it wasn't non-stop driving as she stopped for two hours but didn't want to wake Lena, but Lena just sighs and tells her to get some sleep, calling her Cass. Cassandra questions the name, as she generally only refers to her as Mullins, but Lena just tells her to get some rest, as they still have a long way to go. The following thirty minutes contain only the sounds of the vehicle, although fifteen minutes in, Lena stops to get a blanket out of a bag for Cassandra, who only quietly groans in her sleep. Soon afterwards however, the faint outline of a house under construction on the side of the road is seen. As Lena drives closer, several more houses are seen by the side of the road, all constructed a fair distance away from each other in varying states of progress. As the car comes close enough for her to look inside, she sees a human face looking at her through one of the windows, and quickly disappears from view. As the car passes the house, the outline of a transformed individual is seen running away from the window, and Lena curses under her breath. The car passes by several more houses and several burnt out campfire pits, and Lena sees more transformed individuals run into the house, as if fleeing from the car in fear. Some are even dropping grocery bags as they rush inside or attempting to protect other instances as the car passes, demonstrating something that's been removed from the record. Alarmed at the quantity of the creatures, Lena starts speeding up, quickly leaving the area behind. As she continues driving, she eventually turns on her gps, calculating the distance to Edmonton, the capital of Alberta. The GPS informs her that Edmonton is 500 kilometers away, and her estimated time of arrival is 4 hours and 50 minutes. It then says that from her current position, Edmonton is to the southwest, but from her perspective it is to her front. She's confused at first, but then comes to a realization and stops the car. She gets out and looks through a pair of binoculars at the distant mountain range. After a few seconds, she lowers the binoculars with a look of shock on her face. She goes back into the truck and wakes Cassandra, who asks what's going on. Lena tells her to look in that direction and asks her what she sees, to which Cassandra replies that it's a mountain range. She then has her look through the binoculars and she realizes that it's not a mountain range, but rather a city. The creatures have just continued to build more and more buildings on top of one another up to a kilometer high at least. The buildings also don't resemble any sort of normal human architecture. Lena says that they can't risk going into there, so they'll have to go around. Cassandra says that they can make their way through the central rockies, going by the parkways, And by the time they get across the border they'll be in montana and won't have to deal with any big urban centers before yellowstone. Lena starts up the truck again and says that they may not have enough gas to do it but at least it's a plan and they can hope that the rockies are far enough from the cities. Cassandra replies that she hopes so and calls Lena ma'am as she has continually done since the start. Lena responds that she can call her Lena, as they've been around each other long enough. Cassandra hesitates but agrees, and the two continue on, shutting off the camera as the words battery low begin to flash on top of the video. The footage picks up again a few hours later, as they're driving on a steep road in the central rockies. Lena immediately tells Cassandra to conserve the battery on the camera as they don't know if they'll get lucky again in finding another battery. She also mentions quietly that they still need gas, and she appears tense. Cassandra turns the camera to look backwards, showing a massive collection of buildings in the distance, with many seeming to equal the altitude of the vehicle itself. It extends nearly across the horizon, vanishing past the line of the surrounding mountains, This was once Edmonton, and even from the distant standpoint of the camera's perspective, the gray color of Edmonton appears to encompass nearly the entirety of the view from the back window. Massive buildings are stacked on top of one another, constructed in seemingly illogical ways. A tower can be seen diagonally sprouting from a larger rectangular building while a spire seems to jut dangerously from the top of another building further up. Lena gets the vehicle onto a flatter road and breathes a sigh of relief. She looks at the camera and says that they're hoping further south will be a bit better, especially in Montana, but they aren't counting on it. If Edmonton's already this big, who knows how large Calgary will be. She then tells Cassandra to turn it off to save the battery, and Cassandra chuckles before calling her ma'am again. Lena smiles incredulously and tells her that she said no more ma'am as the video cuts off. Thirty minutes later however the footage picks up again, with the two passing by forests and meadows as mountain peaks appear in the distance. Lena mentions the pretty view and says that she assumes Cassandra has been through here before. She chuckles and asks if Lena hasn't, but Lena never had the chance to come out here with the constant deployments. Lena then starts to slow down the truck, pointing forward. They see a scattered group of five transformed individuals, all covered in thick blankets, running in the direction of the car. Two of them are attempting to use their arms to protectively cover the others, which are composed of roughly ten juvenile pedal instances between the three other creatures. The juveniles are straining their necks to watch the car as it passes, before being hurriedly ushered away from the car and the road by the two other instances, which are made up of almost purely adult pedal instances. Lena asks what they're doing to which Cassandra responds that they're running away. She leans forward and points the camera ahead, and a faint rectangular shadow can be seen in the distance. Lena sighs and tells her to get the duffel bag and take out the earplugs. Now, and the video ends. Fifteen minutes later, the video starts again, showing multiple large buildings leering over the mountains quickly being added to by thousands of transformed individuals. The buildings have been constructed in a bizarre manner, with some structures branching out from others, and others even penetrating into and emerging from the mountains. As the vehicle continues to coast forward, a large glass skyscraper-like building emerges from the fog, laying down on a mountain's peak to encompass the space above the parkway onto the peak across from it. This is what's become of Calgary, and thousands of creatures can be seen constructing the buildings, shouting at the two agents as they pass under the skyscraper. Each pedal instance also waves their arms with urgency as the car approaches, as if trying to get the attention of the operatives. Lena, wearing earplugs, ignores them as she continues driving, speeding the vehicle up in order to quickly leave the area. As she does so, however, more buildings continue to emerge from the fog, with several other buildings like the skyscraper acting as bridges from one peak to another across the space above the parkway. More creatures wave desperately from the surface of the buildings, and Lena curses multiple times under her breath. Cassandra says that it's the heart of the city, and they're heading right into it. The footage ends and picks up again thirteen minutes later as the vehicle continues to cruise through the parkway. The volume of the bridges continues to increase, causing the road to become dark and some have even been constructed to loom low over the parkway, with creatures clinging to the bottom of the buildings to attempt to reach the roof of the car. The sounds of fingers scraping against the car roof can be heard, and Lena continues to increase the speed of the car as the dull roar of the creature's voices begins to increase in volume, with voices and individual words becoming clearly distinguished. Cassandra begins panicking exclaiming that she can hear them, and Lena shouts for her to hold on. The sounds of fingers scraping against the roof adds to the cacophony as more creatures come into view, their expressions clearly seen, showing fear, panic, and helplessness. A word is seen being mouthed and shouted by many of them, but it's been removed from the record. As the vehicle approaches, They bring their hands out to touch it, causing many to slam against the windshield, as Lena shouts at them to get away. As the ceiling continues to get lower and lower, individual heads of the creatures begin to be low enough to touch the windshield itself, and as Lena continues to speed through, she collides with one petal instance's head, causing a large spider web of cracks to appear across the windshield. Blood is seen running down the windshield shortly after, and more hands continue to emerge from windows at the bottom of the building above them. As they slam into the glass, the cracks continue to widen and widen before encompassing the entirety of the windshield. The sounds of shouting become louder and louder as Lena yells that they're almost out of it. As more hands hit the glass, the windshield breaks causing the volume of the pedals' voices to increase into a deafening, omnipresent roar. Instantly, both Lena and Cassandra start screaming and writhing in pain, causing the camera to fall onto the floor of the car. The things that the creatures are shouting have largely been removed from the record, as Cassandra yells that she can hear them, and Lena yells at them to just stop. Suddenly the car's wheels begin to whine loudly as the vehicle loses control before completely turning over. The camera's lens is heard breaking as it impacts the car door, and Lena and Cassandra can be heard screaming, but they're drowned out by the sound of the creatures. The remainder of the log has largely been removed entirely due to containing 7004 vectors, with only bits and pieces remaining. It mentions that they are heard coming closer and closer, and glass is heard breaking. Apparently they can be heard asking a question about a location, as Lena continues to shout at them to get away, and yells at Cassandra to get up. She continues to swear, and says that she'll have to carry her, but the massive amount of pain is getting to her as well. She says that she can't do it anymore and the log ends. The document itself errors out as the AI becomes unable to respond due to the massive number of 7004 vectors, and SCIPnet, the internal SCP network, crashes. As the system reinitializes, the date is shown to be nearly a month after the last log, and the AI responsible for automatically scanning for hazards is still offline. A connection is found, however, in Yellowstone National Park, and a video feed picks up again. The video begins in darkness, and outside the muffled sound of boots scraping against the ground are heard. They are heard echoing into the surrounding room, suggesting a moderately large interior space. Cassandra's voice can be heard, asking why she is here, and calling out to Lena. More sounds of shuffled footsteps are heard, and the sound of the bag being set aside on a nearby surface is heard, as Cassandra checks her clothes and pockets. She has her winter coat, a civilian t-shirt, military pants, a flashlight, but no firearms. She continues to check her supplies, which include various food items, plenty of water, and a torn space blanket. She then takes the camera out. Showing the surroundings to be a long and dark hallway lit only by blue emergency lights. She realizes that it's her helmet cam with the auto transcriber taped on and that it's broadcasting. She turns it to face herself and asks if Lena is watching this and can see her. Her appearance is tired and dirty, with a dark brown grease smeared on the right side of her face. Speckles of blood are seen dirtying her collar, with the fur lining of her winter coat being grey and black in places instead of white. Her hair is tied behind her head in a ponytail, with the strands on her forehead being matted with sweat. She stares into the camera for several seconds before shaking her head and saying that, if anyone's listening, she hopes that they're watching out for her. She clips the camera to her shirt and raises her flashlight asking where she is and how she got here. She puts all of the stuff back into the bag, showing it to be her original molly bag, although dirtied, torn, and tattered in places. She slings it over her shoulder and begins to walk down the long hallway, with the only sounds being her slow, echoing footsteps. After three minutes, a door can be seen to the left with a sign reading Maintenance Tunnel located above it. She looks further down the long, dark hallway before turning back to the door. She sighs and quietly opens it, quickly moving into the room and checking the corners. The only things she sees in the room are pipes of an indeterminate purpose attached to the walls and a metal staircase leading down. A dim blue light is seen emanating from the corner past the staircase. Slowly she begins to advance, keeping the flashlight in front of her as she walks, and she moves down the staircase, turning a corner in the direction of the blue light. The light is coming from an emergency lamp, placed high on the wall here, and below it are the words, All that are sane are to follow this path to main evac. The words are untidily scrawled on the wall with white chalk, in a manner similar to the writings of a small child, and most of the words are misspelled. Below it, an arrow pointing further down the hall is scrawled with the same chalk. Cassandra continues to walk down the narrow, dark corridor, her footsteps echoing through the hallway. After several minutes, a second pair of feet are heard echoing throughout the hallway, keeping pace with Cassandra, although she doesn't seem to notice. The footsteps keep in almost pace with hers, though one seems to drag, like that of a slight limp. Ahead, another blue emergency light can be seen, underneath of which can be seen another note, written again in chalk. Cassandra begins to increase her pace to check it out, and the footsteps behind her attempt to compensate quietly scraping across the ground in its attempt to do so. The writing on the wall is similar to the other set, reading, To control room right, to evac left. Keep any insane out. Many have already died. Cassandra is only confused by this, and slowly begins to move backward. Surprised, the footsteps behind her begin to backtrack but are unable to keep pace and stumble. Cassandra turns around in surprise, shining her flashlight onto a transformed individual, who brings one of its hands up in a stopping gesture. It pleads for her to not hurt them. Unlike the other instances, which are unclothed, this one has a large, thick but dirty fur blanket wrapped around the region above its legs obscuring any possible petal entities making up the instance, aside from the one speaking. This particular instance resembles a thirteen-year-old girl with matted blonde hair and a face smeared with ash, showing an expression of pure fear. Cassandra begins to ask it a question, but it pleads again for her to not hurt them. Cassandra is unable to speak staring at the creature and shaking her head slightly in disbelief and shock. The creature says that they came only for safety, speaking in an indeterminate and alien accent, but the fear in its voice is apparent, and it shakes as it speaks. It says that they only followed what was said on the radio. Cassandra asks who it's talking about, and it responds that It was the man on the radio, the foundation man. Cassandra is shocked and confused, and says that she doesn't understand. The creature says that it's so dangerous out there, and they cannot go back because the insane will kill them. Cassandra, in a daze, says that her head doesn't hurt anymore, and she can hear everything that it is saying. The creature begins to crawl forward on its knees, clinging to Cassandra's ankle while still keeping the blanket around its neck with its other hand. Tears run down its face as it tries to plead. It says that it was everything the man said, and pleads with her to not take them back. It has their brother-sister here with them, and they are only children. Cassandra is shocked to hear the word children and quickly throws the blanket off the creature, exposing two more petal instances, each clinging desperately to the first petal instance. Both resemble children less than six years of age, and are shivering as they look up at her. Among the three instances, they all share the same blonde hair and dark eyes. Immediately the first petal instance scrambles to take the blanket moving forward on bloodied knees as it attempts to wrap the blanket around itself. As it does so, it stands up, the fear in its eyes becoming even stronger, and it pleads again for her not to hurt them. Cassandra says that they're just people. People made into this, and the petal instance nods eagerly, agreeing with her. Suddenly. Lena's voice shouts for it to get away from her, and before Cassandra can stop her, several silenced gunshots are heard, ripping through the creature and splattering blood on Cassandra. As the petal instance looks down at her with a new, rushing fear, it collapses to the ground. Cassandra looks down in horror as Lena calls out to her and rushes out of the darkness, holding her assault rifle in one hand. Blood covers much of her clothes, and as she comes into view, her face is covered in blood as well. She kneels down and embraces Cassandra, saying that she almost thought she lost her, and she almost did. Cassandra is still in shock as Lena checks her for injuries and notices that she lost her earplugs. She says that she knows they can't twist anymore, but Cassandra interrupts her telling her to stop. Lena apologizes, but Cassandra is incredulous and begins to pant heavily. She says that she believed Lena when she told her that they were just SCPs and not people, that they didn't matter. Lena tells her to stop and that she can't think about this anymore, but Cassandra shouts at her asking why not. She says that the man and his daughter. The person that tried to get in front of the car, all of the ones back in Watson Lake, they were people. The man was using the radio to get here, and the person that got in front of the car tried to stop her, and she killed them all. All of those people in the mountains, the ones building the towers in Calgary, were waving their arms, trying to get their attention, asking for help, and they ran them over. She points a shaking finger at the corpse and says that that girl was just trying to escape with her family and she finally got here and Lena shot them dead. Lena's expression turns from puzzlement to horror and she begins to shake her head, saying that Cassandra can't be falling for this, not now. A tear runs down her cheek and she says that she went through hell and high water to get them here. Dragging her out of that wreck in the mountains when she couldn't stop screaming from the pain. She nursed Cassandra back to health, fighting tooth and nail to keep her alive for a thousand miles. She begins shaking Cassandra violently by her shoulders, tears running down her cheeks, and she shouts at her that she will fight, and she'll keep going and forget. She'll be right by her side when they end this, because she's the only one she has left. The anger leaves her, and she appears completely defeated, tears covering her face. She says that that's why she needs her to fight, and pleads with her. A long silence passes between the two as they stare at each other, and Cassandra asks for her to promise her something. She asks that when she gets out there and ends this thing, that she does it for them, looking back at the corpse. Lena tells her again to stop, but Cassandra's eyes begin to tear up and she slowly removes the camera from her shirt and pins it to Lena's shirt. Lena looks up at her, horror crossing her expression, and Cassandra smiles with tears welling up in her eyes. Lena desperately tells her to stop thinking about it, but Cassandra begins to heave and apologizes. She then vomits a large amount of blood, staggering backwards, and begins to scream in agony. A long ripping sound is heard from her abdomen, followed by a slow trickle of blood from between her fingers. She continues to scream, then looks down at her body as the discernible shape of a bloody arm begins to pry itself from between her hands. This arm then begins to cling to the sides of her abdomen using it to pull itself out, revealing another arm. As she screams, a voice is heard from the large gaping wound, as the words, help us, can be heard prominently. Slowly, as the wound widens, a human head resembling that of a female emerges. Its long hair is matted with blood, nearly covering her eyes as she looks straight at the camera. As she continues to emerge, the petal instance screams in anguish, using her arms to push herself up against the surroundings of the wound. This causes Cassandra to fall to the ground with the added weight and force, causing her to scream loudly again as she continues to bleed profusely. Soon after though, her head and body goes limp. The newly emerged petal instance's waist can already be seen emerging from the wound, and as it screams once again, it gives one last push against Cassandra's body, stopping once the top of its hips can be seen. As blood continues to drop from its face and hair onto the floor, it speaks, asking what happened. In horror, it brings its hands up close to its face, trembling as it looks at them, and a strangled whimper is heard coming from it. Horrified. Lena asks what it is, and the petal instance slowly turns from looking at its hands to look at Lena in the camera. Its bloodshot eyes can be seen in detail as they widen with shock. As it looks at Lena, it slowly brings its head up, as if trying to get a better view of her, and it trembles as it speaks a single word, help, in a voice identical to that of Cassandra's. A second later, it suddenly screams at the top of its lungs in agony once again, as another pair of arms appear at its waist, using it as a handhold to pull itself up. As the first petal instance continues to scream, Lena staggers to her feet and begins to run away. Behind her, the newly created creature continues to scream in excruciating pain, with additional tearing sounds being heard as Lena gets further and further away from the scene. As she runs, she sees another blue light ahead of her, illuminating a split in the hallway which goes both right and left. She takes the time to catch her breath, bending down and putting her hands on her knees as she does so. She begins to quietly sob, but after a few seconds she gets back on her feet and punches the wall next to her, screaming in anger as she does so. She continues to swear and punch the wall multiple times, before sobbing and slumping against the wall. She then quietly apologizes multiple times to Cassandra between sobs, before eventually wiping away her tears and sweat, looking back at the dark hallway behind her. Exhaling one last time, she stands, trying to regain her composure. She continues to shake as she does so barely suppressing her sobs, but eventually straightens her posture, looking at the sign on the wall that reads, Control Room. Balling her hands into fists, she walks forward with composure, and a light coming from an unseen source can be seen in front of her. As she gets closer, she sees that the hallway terminates with a large metal door, which seems to have been removed from its hinges and placed within the doorway. The light is coming from the space between the floor and the door. Lena continues forward with determination, seeing the words Control Room on a sign above the door. The muffled sounds of several voices can be heard beyond the door, with someone yelling at something to open. Lena readies her assault rifle and kicks the door in, rushing into the room, but she suddenly freezes. In front of her is a large entity composed of dozens of seemingly dead corpses and assorted limbs and heads, all centered on a hunched figure standing still in the middle of the room. Upon closer inspection, the figure, which resembles an old man, merges with all of the other body parts and corpses around him, with its left arm and the entire back of its head being one with the surrounding mass while the right arm rests beside a large lever protected by glass. It seems to only be standing through the effort of the arms and legs on the bottom of the mass, with the legs of the figure itself seeming to hover a few centimeters from the ground. A great deal of light is seeping in from the surrounding windows which encompass the entire circumference of the room. The figure watches Lena with a surprised look as she enters, and then the entire mass begins to speak. It refers to her as a native and asks what she's doing here. Each of the heads that make up the entity continue to speak as the central figure does, though with an increasing but slight delay for the heads that are distributed further from the figure. They all speak with the same dead emotion and careful enunciation, but so far only the central figure seems to be able to make non-verbal gestures with its hands. Its eyebrows are knotted together in anger as it speaks, and its voice is the same as the voice on the radio at Watson Lake. Lena also begins to shake with anger, and says that she's here to end this. The entity responds that she has no idea how much it's done to get here, causing Lena to tighten her grip on her rifle and step forward, shouting that so has she. The entity's eyes widen before lowering into a deep scowl, and then asking her if she's foundation, like it is. Lena doesn't reply, instead only staring back. It continues, asking her what she's doing this for, such as for glory, or hubris, or for someone she loves. Lena begins to tremble with barely contained anger, further tightening her grip on her rifle, but the entity asks her if she came here for two thousand. It then moves to face her, wincing in pain as it does so, and covering the lever. It asks if she means to wipe them out, to make it so that they never lived in the first place. It attempts to shake its head, but cries out in pain as it does so, although it continues to stare down Lena. It says that they came here to flee and for another second chance. She won't stand in the way of that, no matter how long it takes for it to get this thing open. Lena lets out an exasperated breath, and tells the entity to get the hell out of her way. It moves forward suddenly however, causing her to step back, and it says that she came here for nothing. It won't let it in, and it doubts that she has the clearance to do it either. Lena doesn't reply, only continuing to stare at it, and it takes another pained step forward, pointing with all of its hands to the hallway behind her, telling her to go back. After a few seconds, though, realization dawns on its face, and it asks if she has it. She doesn't reply, and after a tense moment of silence, the entity rushes at Lena, swiping at her with all of its arms. Lena quickly runs to the side, causing it to collide with the wall, as she raises her rifle and fires several rounds into the creature. It begins to lean against the wall for support, and several of the bodies attached to it cease to move. It lets out a hacking cough, and slowly turns to face her, looking at her with menace and desperation. A large trail of blood is seen below its mouth, and it says that so many depend on it. It lumbers forward again, with labored breathing, and says that it won't let her. It screams again and tries to take another swipe at her, but she quickly fires again, creating multiple wounds on its chest. It takes a step back and coughs again, blood pouring out of its wounds, and it slowly falls to the ground against the wall. Lena lowers her rifle, as the entity looks up at her with wide eyes. It begs her not to wipe them out, saying that they deserve a second chance. Lena stares at it and says that they killed billions and destroyed the world, and they deserved a second chance. The figure desperately shakes its head, saying that she doesn't understand, but Lena responds that she believes she does. She turns and heads over to the large control panel, pressing her thumb to a scanner and opening up the cover on the lever. The entity continues to beg for her not to do this, but Lena begins to input new numbers into the keypad with trembling hands. The entity then begs for her to look outside, causing her to stop. She turns to face it again and it asks her to just look outside so that she'll understand. Lena doesn't move, so the creature says that she's won and to just do this one last thing for it. She eventually acquiesces and heads over to the windows. Outside of the control room, in the large chamber beyond, she sees hundreds of storage units on the floor, many of them having been repurposed into living spaces for at least two hundred transformed creatures. Unlike others, these instances behave with a much more human countenance, speaking to each other and attempting to walk with the support of both their arms and a single pair of legs. Blankets are seen on many of the creatures, with even more being handed out freely by several instances wearing blue foundation guard attire. All of them are watching the control room, and some of the juvenile instances are seen crying with older instances attempting to comfort them. Others are seen murmuring amongst themselves as they continue to look up at the control room. The entity explains that they are the sane ones, the only sane ones out of the billions who came here. The rest are the ones she's seen. Insane, wailing, feral. It then coughs up more blood, and its voice gets weaker. It says that it's the one at fault, the one who gambled to get them all here, and asks that she kill it off, but not the others. It's then interrupted by another figure asking for help, and the two turn their heads to the voice, which is identical to Cassandra's. The voice is distant, and it's soon followed by several more screams which come from distant voices. A quiet choke is heard from Lena and the voice of Cassandra continues to call out for help. The entity watches Lena and asks if she knew this person. Lena confirms it, and the entity says that she understands then. Quietly, Lena chuckles, mixed with suppressed sobbing. The other voices get further away, and Lena trembles as she says that she remembers the time when Cass and her were driving here she had just messed up and almost got them killed, but drove for ten hours to try and make up for it. When Lena woke her afterwards, she told her that she was just unlucky, and that was it. She didn't need to atone. Lena shakes and is on the verge of tears as she says that you just gotta make the best of what you got. She looks down, tears falling from her eyes, and says that she knows what Cassandra meant now about doing it for them. Lena started on this journey wanting to reset the world, to make it what it was, so that these things never came here in the first place. She shakes her head and asks the entity what the date was that it had put in the keypad, which was nine fifteen ten sixty six. The entity responds in an extremely quiet voice, saying that, It was the time their universes were split in two, and their histories changed. It wanted to do it for a new beginning, so that their world can continue, even if their history wasn't the same as ours. Lena nods and sniffles, saying that their histories don't have to be separate then. She turns around to face the lever, and looks back at the entity, saying that They were just unlucky, just like Cass said. She then grunts in pain, pressing her hand to her belly, but smiles again. She says that she doesn't think that she can forgive them for what they've done, and then coughs up some blood. She continues, saying that if they can have a new beginning, then let's do it together. The figure tries to smile, but is unable to, and a single tear runs down its cheek, The entity thanks her with its last breath, and Lena pulls the lever. The article then informs us that this document was last accessed 1,024 years, 10 months, and 3 days ago. The person reading the document then deletes the entire article and logs off. The terminal thanks them for using SCIPnet and implores them to save the world for them. So, most of what happened here is fairly clear, but I'll summarize. Essentially the creatures were all humans from another universe, one where something went very wrong. In an attempt to save the remaining population, the administrator of their foundation decided to send everyone over to another universe, ours. It certainly wasn't their intent to make their people explode out of ours, as something went catastrophically wrong. The infohazard that their foundation created spread across our world like wildfire, and it caused the creation of the petal instances. This process drove most of the petal instances, the people from the other universe, into insanity. They were still largely harmless, not wanting to actively hurt anyone, but rather were just lost and confused, trying to rebuild their world in ours. A small group of petals, however, were still sane, including the administrator, which was the entity at the end. He told the rest of the sane ones on the radio to head to scp-2000, where he could reset the world, even if they'd all be wiped out in the process. He decided to reset the world back to 1066, which was the date that the timelines of the two universes diverged. Lena decided to follow through on that plan. reset the world back to a point where the two peoples were still together as one, so that they both had a world to call their own. This is largely a grim horror story filled with gruesome moments and plenty of death, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. SCP-2000 will effectively reset human civilization, recreating it at the chosen date and allowing humanity to continue on as if nothing happened. It's perhaps a little perplexing on the specifics, as generally the only things scp-2000 does are recreate humans and rebuild infrastructure, not actually reset timelines or wipe out anomalies. Regardless, it's meant to be an optimistic ending, a bright side to cap off the horribleness that occurred to two different sets of humanity. Both universes were just unlucky, in different ways. Yes, their foundation administrator caused this to happen to our world, inadvertently, but you can't really blame him for trying.